Father, I want to thank you for this morning. And uh, as we're uh, kind of starting a new sermon series today, uh, and we're going to spend uh, the next six weeks or so in the book of John, I just want to pray that we would uh, receive every word that you want us to receive, and we would be moved in all the ways that you want us to be moved. Uh, we thank you so much for Jesus and for his grace and for his words. It's in his name we pray. Amen. My parents uh, used to love to tell the story of, I was in elementary school and we had been learning about the presidents. And one day we were uh, off having lunch with some extended family and one of my uh, aunts or uncles asked, what do you want to be when you grow up? And with all the passion and zeal of an overconfident elementary age student, I said, someday I'm going to be the president of the United States. Uh, and, I, and I meant every word of it. I, I really fell in love with politics at an early age. Uh, and then in middle school, that kind of, at the early uh, middle school age, it transitioned to wanting to be an NBA player. Uh, had absolutely no athletic ability, so that was a bit of a problem. Uh, and then in later middle school, uh, I remember being at camp and hearing a sermon. And uh, there's no other real way to describe it, but the Lord, I felt the Lord called me into preaching ministry. Uh, and I'm just one of those very fortunate people uh, that like from 7th, 8th grade on, I, I've known what I want to do and I'm, I'm doing it and it's an incredible thing. But we all have dreams, right? They transition and they shift, but we all have dreams. If you're here today and you're a kid, maybe you dream like I was uh, about what you want to be when you grow up. If you're a teenager, you're having dreams about getting away from your parents, right? And going off to college and living the parent-free dream life until you need your laundry done. Um, and <laughs> if you're a young adult, you might be dreaming about a position or advancing at work. If you're married, you have dreams of building a home and a life together. If uh, you have kids, you have these dreams of someday them, uh, someday them being out of your house and... <laughs> When they're out of your house, you have these dreams of them someday coming back and visiting you, right? So we have these dreams, and if you move it away from that for a minute, um, really what this series is about is we all have spiritual dreams uh, as well. And um, there are these kind of spiritual-based dreams that are just true for every human being. And I think there's a couple reasons why we have this sense of shared dreams that we're going to talk about uh, through this series. And they both go back to the book of Genesis, that when God created uh, the man and the woman, the Bible says he created us in his image. One of the things that means, that means a lot of things, but one of the things that it means is that God's dream for humanity is shared with us. It's inside of us. So I believe God has placed desire inside of you and inside of me. We are created in his image, and we should and do share his desires for the world. Now, our sin nature means that there is a war within us when it comes to God's dream for us and humanity in the world. Our sin nature means that there's a thing that's in competition with what God desires most. And we just finished up a whole sermon series on, on this idea of, of sin nature. But if you think about like God's dream for the world is love, lust comes in and is in competition with it. God's desire and dream for the world is that we would be generous, greed competes. God's uh, dream for the world is that we would be humble, but pride competes. But because we are made in his image... Because he created us that way, and he placed desire inside of us, one of the shared things with all of humanity is that we all have the same spiritual dream. 
The other place we see this in the book of Genesis is the idea that God did not just set a clock when he created the world and step, step aside. There is some line of thought that causes people to teach that, but that's really not true. That, that would be a, a false teaching. That God just kind of wound up the creation and then he's up in heaven piecing out, right? That's not the reality at all. The, the truth is that God created human beings to be a part of his extended rule and reign over all things. So God tasked us with desire so that we would rule and manage this world well. So no matter who you are, no matter what gifts you have, God created you specifically and God created you individually to play your part of ruling and reigning over creation. And that is the other place where all these dreams come from that all of humanity share, the, the things that we long for. And because we live in a broken and fallen world, and we do, where sin nature exists, we actually see in our culture all around us that people actually have the same dreams for the world that we do as Christians. Dreams like love. That's embedded in every human being, whether you're a Christian or not. You dream of love. Freedom, all right? We're getting ready to celebrate the 4th of July, right? Freedom is an embedded dream that every single human being has. Truth. We all have this desire for the truth. Justice. We're going to talk about that today. We all have this desire for things to be made right. Beauty. We all have this desire for the beautiful. But here's the truth. When those dreams are not fulfilled in Christ, when those dreams are not fulfilled in the will of God, they become what this series is called, a shadow. They become just a shadow. And so you see in our world, everybody has the same dreams. But some people are living in the shadows and some people are, are living those dreams according to the way that Christ says they should be lived, the, the way that God says they should be lived. And, and so in our own lives and in the world as, as a whole, we all have these dreams. Some are in the shadows and some are in Christ. And over the course of this sermon series, we're going to examine these dreams that we all have, and we're going to see how Christ fulfills them, and Christ shows us how these desires should be lived out. We're going to shine the light on these desires, the light of Jesus, and we are going to attempt to make sense of our world. It's a big task for a series, uh, especially one that's only six weeks long, but we're going to attempt to make sense of our world because these human longings that every human being has, as, you, as we work through the series, I hope we'll all see this, these desires are fulfilled in Christ. He shines a light on them, and they can only really truly be enjoyed and fulfilled, I believe, in him. So the basis of this book is two things. It's the book of John. Uh, we're going to be in John the entire time, not in order, but we're going to uh, all the passages are from John. And then there's this N.T. Wright book uh, called Broken Signposts. And we're going we're gonna to follow the chapters of this book where he talks about uh, this idea of the common dreams all humanity shares and how they're fulfilled in Christ. So if you want to get this book, we're going to follow it exactly in, in terms of the chapter headings. And this would be a great supplemental reading. It's a really quick read, a, a great supplemental reading for you as we work through the series as we step out of the shadows into the light of Jesus and find out what his true desire for the world looks like. And I think that there is no better place to start on this than when it comes to the idea of justice. Justice is a shared yearning that every human being has. Our, our world has this core desire for justice. And we can see it in the stories that we love. 
Um, over the pandemic, my family, uh, with our son Sam, we started uh, working through the Marvel series, the superhero series. Uh, it was a great kind of pandemic watch, right? And we see in these superhero stories that, that it goes to the idea of justice, that there's a villain, something's wrong, something's not working, but there is a hero. There is a hero who is going to step into the space and he is going to make things right. He's going to defeat the enemy and he's going to bring about justice. I get all worked up about this. I love these superhero movies. I cannot get enough of them. And every once in a while I'll meet someone that's like, I don't really care for superhero movies. No! no. This is core to our human longing. These stories are about something's not right, something's not good, but there is a hero. And the hero steps in and he makes things right. Our, our desire for justice can be seen in the, store, in the news that we consume. Uh, you, you probably have this uh, uh, feeling when you're watching the news or reading the internet or however you consume your news where you will hear a story, you will hear about an incident, and there will be this thing inside of you that's like, that's not right. That's not good. That's not holy. That's not righteous. And there's this thing inside of you that's just like, no, this world is broken. That's not the way it should be. Or around Christmas time, it's the only time they really do this, when they give you the feel-good stories, right? We get those out of 12 months. We get those one. um, And you'll be watching one of those Christmas stories, and the same thing happens in the opposite direction. You're like, that's good. That's right. That's holy. That is just. Our desire for justice can be seen in the causes we support. I heard one pastor say a long time ago, this is a really dated reference, but a long time ago he says, I believe God has placed inside of every person a Popeye moment. You remember the old, old, old cartoon Popeye? You can hardly even find these anymore. My kids were asking about it several months ago, and we're looking for it on YouTube, and you can't hardly even find these things. But there, there would be these moments where Popeye was seeing a, a wrong that was done, an evil committed, or whatever. He's watching it happen, and there'd come this moment in every cartoon where he'd say, it's all I can stand, I can stand it no more. And he'd grab a can of spinach, and I don't know what that did, right? But he'd grab a can of spinach, and he'd become super strong, and he would address the injustice injustice with great strength. And this pastor was drawing the comparison. He said, God placed that inside of you, that every single person has a thing that they're drawn to. It's all I can stand. I can stand it no more. And it's different for every person. For Cheryl and I, like when we hear about a couple going through infertility or the challenges of adoption, our heart just bends to them. Right? Our heart just bends it because God placed that inside of us. And for you, it might be something different. It might be someone unfairly laid off from work or hearing about an abuse story or someone going through a divorce or a kid struggling at school. And you hear the story and your heart, you can't explain it. Your heart just bends toward the issue. And you're like, let me pray for you. Let me support you. Let me help you. It is all I can stand. I can stand it no more. That's your Popeye moment. But until we understand this craving and this need for justice, justice in our world will always have these shadows of unhealthiness. Until we understand justice in the light of Jesus, justice will become anger. In our culture right now, we're going to talk about this later, justice is primarily executed in the realm of the angry. Justice will become the idolatry of a political leader who will make everything right. How many times do we have to go through this before we learn, right? If we just vote right, 
If we just put the right person in, everything will be okay. And then we do that in our mind, and what happens? Not everything's okay. Because justice is not understood in the context of a political leader. Justice should be understood in the context of Jesus. Justice will become self-consumed or selfish, where it becomes mostly focused on justice for me. And I don't necessarily care that much about justice for you. So in Jesus, we see this sense of justice fulfilled. I want to show you John 19. This is one of the most unjust stories ever. Uh, it's the story of Jesus getting ready to go to the cross. And I want to read it to you. It's a little bit of a, of a lengthy passage, but I think it's important for us to hear it. And we're going to start to see the way Jesus viewed justice and his hope that someday justice would be fulfilled. Because hope is a great, great thing when it comes to our yearning for justice. All right? Then Pilate took Jesus and had him flogged. The soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head. They clothed him in a purple robe and went up to him and again, uh, went up again saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And they slapped him in the face. Once more Pilate came out and said to the Jews gathered there, Look, I am bringing him out to you to let you know that I find no basis for a charge against him. When Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, Pilate said to him, Here is the man. As soon as the chief priests and the officials saw him, they shouted, Crucify him! Crucify him! But Pilate said, You take him and crucify him. As for me, I find no basis of a charge against him. The Jewish leaders insisted. We have law, and according to that law, he must die because he claimed to be the Son of God. When Pilate heard this, he was even more afraid, and he went back inside into the palace. Where do you come from, he asked Jesus, and here's what I want you to remember. Jesus gave him no answer. Do you refuse to speak to me? Don't you realize that I have the power either to free you or crucify you? Jesus answered, you would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. Therefore, the one who handed me over to you is guilty of greater sin. From then on, Pilate tried to set Jesus free, but the Jewish leaders kept shouting, if you let this man go, you are no friend of Caesar. Anyone who claims to be a king opposes Caesar. When Pilate heard this, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judge's seat at a place known as the stone pavement, which in Aramaic is Gabbatha, and it was on the day of preparation for the Passover. It was about noon. Here's your king, Pilate said to the Jews. But they shouted, take him away, take him away, crucify him. Shall I crucify your king, Pilate asked? We have no king but Caesar. The chief priests answered. And finally, Pilate handed him over to be crucified. So I want you to see this is unjust on a very practical level. Jesus had done no wrong. And yet, he is being treated like a criminal. And you can see where it's going. The end result is the crucifixion of Jesus that we remember here every single Sunday morning. And hopefully, we as Christians remember it every single day. But it's a powerful moment for us that God used this very unjust moment to bring about incredible grace. And I think in our understanding and quest for justice, we want to remember stories like this, that it was in a moment of injustice, and it was a moment of profound injustice, that God was able to bring about something good and right and righteous. That the unjust 
do not have their total way. That God can use even the injustice of mankind to bring about his will and his desire. And we see this on a micro level all of the time. Out of the ashes of incredible injustice rose Martin Luther King and his words are still influencing and shaping our culture today. It was in the wake of Roe v. Wade that came a conversation about life and adoption and all these things that we care about as Christians. In the wake of every story where someone is uh, unjustly imprisoned comes a story about the rights of the incarcerated and the rights of the prisoner. Don't mistake what God can use to bring about glory for himself, to bring about good, and to bring about righteousness. And some of you have stories that are exactly like this, that it was in the wake of an injustice that was done to you. This wrong, this sin, this problem, that out of that injustice came a ministry or a story you tell or a relationship or a purpose. God gave you a purpose through that injustice and God kept his promise to you that all things work for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Don't underestimate what God can do even in the midst of the actions of the unjust. One of the reasons that we get so angry about injustice, one of the reasons is that we feel hopeless that nothing good can come as the result of their actions. Don't underestimate what God can do. The cross is an example of it. Civil rights are an example of it. Life is an example of it. God can use and often does use these moments in history of injustice to further his message to further his name, and to do incredible good. And so this changes our perspective, I think, on injustice. We grieve. We grieve injustice, and we should. This is biblical, true, and right. A whole book of the Bible is called Lamentations, right? So we grieve, we grieve, and we grieve. But no one should ever be happy about injustice. But we grieve with hope knowing that someday justice will come, more on that in a minute, we grieve with hope, but we grieve with confidence, knowing that God is good, his work is good, and he can accomplish good through any and every circumstance. God can do incredibly beautiful things, even in the midst of pain. And so we grieve with hope, and we grieve with confidence, knowing that God can do that. And so it would be impossible to not recognize in a sermon like this, that we live in a world of injustice where people are hurt instead of helped. And so what do we do in the face of injustice? No matter how big or small, how do we respond to injustice, to that Popeye moment where it's like, that's wrong, that's not right, that is unjust. How do we respond? Do we feel bad? Do we make a well-crafted social media post? Do we commission a study so the same mistakes won't be made again? Do we hold a grudge vowing that one day we'll get even? Do we vote, protest, donate our way out of it? Do we accuse as we've been accused, scheme that we've been schemed against, shout louder than our enemies so that we can be heard? And in our culture, I think it would be hard to deny this, one of the primary responses to injustice that we are seeing on both sides of the aisle Everywhere in our world, the response to injustice is primarily anger, angst, sarcasm, and sometimes violence. 
And I think I would just want to ask a simple question. How is it working for us? How is it working for you? To be so filled with anger and angst and sarcasm and a desire for violence. How is it working? Because I will tell you, Jesus shows us a different way. Faced with the greatest injustice ever, Jesus, when he is before Pilate, is shockingly quiet. He gave no answer. Now, there does come a time in this story that I want to cover real quick where Jesus does speak truth to power because Pilate says, after he gives no uh, uh, answer, Pilate says to him, do you not realize who I am? I have the power to release you or crucify you. Why won't you say anything? And I love the truth that Jesus speaks. He says, you have the power over me because of those above you. Those that handed me over to you, the Jewish leaders, the crowds, and even Caesar, they have given away their authority to you. That's the only reason you have power over me. And then here's what Jesus says. They are guilty of greater sin. Here's the lesson. Be careful about misdirected anger, guys, and misdirected angst. So I have been thinking a lot about the anger and angst in our culture right now and in our world. Um, In my uh, experience, um, just personally, the, the angst in the general public seems even worse than it was during the pandemic, but I believe it is a pandemic-related issue, and here's what I mean by that. When you study the 1917-1918 pandemic, um, one of the kind of resounding things that came out of that pandemic was a sense of community, that we are in this together, we're fighting this together, we are a community, we are friends, we are going to get through this, and you would read all of this stuff about hope and community and and being uh, in it together, and at the very beginning of our pandemic, our culture chose that path, but over time, we decided to take a different path, and that path is called, if you disagree with me, you're an idiot, all right? And I think, this is just my personal theory here, I think we have never really been able to shed that angst. I think we've never been able to shed that angst. In your quest to speak truth to power, like Jesus does here, understand that the person most often that you're speaking to is not the person who has the ultimate power to change your circumstance. And so your angst toward them is misdirected. There is a power over them most often that is in control of the situation more than they are. There were so many people in control of Pilate at this point. This is not to let Pilate off the hook per se. He is accountable to God. But I think that understanding would greatly affect the way that we're interacting with people. That the person I'm speaking to is not directly responsible for the pain that I'm enduring a lot of the time. And so Jesus, he speaks with a moderated and respectful tone because he says to Pilate, listen, the only reason you're in this position is those over you and they are guilty of greater sin. And we get to practice this in our day-to-day life on a micro level, separate from a crucifixion, thank God, but we get to practice this often. So tomorrow when you go into work, your boss is probably just executing the plans of corporate. And so your angst and anger toward your boss, there is someone above them guilty of greater sin. Your server at lunch today might just be following the orders of her manager. 
The person on the phone you're interacting with, they're just trying to do what they were trained to do. And so Jesus understands this. So when he speaks truth to power, his tone is moderated and respectful because he's like, you're not even in full, you're not even in full control of this situation. That's a micro lesson, right? I threw that in for free, right? <laughs> that being said, for most of this crucifixion story, Jesus, to me, you can tell me if you agree or not, Jesus is shockingly quiet. Why? Why in the face of the greatest injustice ever, why would he be shockingly quiet? He was the greatest communicator ever. He could have given an incredible speech in this moment. He was the greatest leader ever. He could have organized an event. He was the most powerful person ever. He, he got in human flesh. He could have done some amazing miracles for the crowd. And for the most part, he's silent. Why? He's silent because he is not overcome. He knows that he will be raised through the resurrection. And this confidence in the resurrection, it affects so many areas of life that we've talked about a lot in this church. But I think this confidence in that Jesus is going to return, this confidence in the resurrection changes the way we see the issue of justice. Now, let me say this. Don't mistake quiet with uncaring or detached. Jesus is full of passion. When we say quiet, here's what I mean by that. You don't see him as angry, yelling, fighting. Why? He's on purpose. He's living a life of purpose. And he has this confidence in the resurrection. So he's not overcome by anger. He's not overcome by angst. He's not overcome with sarcasm. He's not overcome because he's confident in what God is going to do over time. So let me ask you, are you confident in the resurrection? I understand you might understand it academically. That's not what I'm asking. That you might be able to quote a few Bible verses if you've been attending church for any length of time. Are you confident in the resurrection? Are you confident in the second coming of Christ? Are you sure that he will complete the work that he started way back in the garden and one day justice will be completed? And there'll be no more sin or death or disease or evil because King Jesus will return and he will be on the throne. Are you confident? You're not acting confident. Are you confident? <laughs> Are you sure? Is that where your hope is? Because it changes so many things, but it changes the way we view justice. I've had a quiet conviction for a while now. This is Steve talking now. I have a quiet conviction that it is time for Christians to begin to practice the discipline of quiet. In a world of anger and in a world of angst, our anger and our angst about how our faith is being diminished or set aside by the culture, listen, it will not be heard. Again, don't confuse quiet with detached. Give money to, count, uh, to, to causes. Volunteer. Speak appropriately. But do not be overcome with anger. Do not be overcome with angst. Do not be overcome with animosity. Why? We have a quiet confidence 
and the resurrection of our Lord and the second coming of Jesus who will one day make everything right and new. Way back when Israel was in captivity in Babylon, I wanted to see what God's advice was to them in captivity. So they're taken out of their homeland, terribly mistreated. They're put in this land uh, called Babylon, and they're kind of stuck there. And here's what it says. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to those I carried into the exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Here's the big advice. Organize, get angry, shout, yell, post. Build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry, have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there, do not decrease. Also, seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I've carried you into, into exile. Pray to the Lord for it because if it prospers, you too will prosper. It is built on this quiet confidence that, hey, Israel, someday captivity is going to end. Someday the promised land is going to come. And our confidence is the same. Listen, someday captivity is going to end. And someday the promised land, the land flowing with milk and honey will come. This changes our perspective and it changes specifically how we work toward justice. Because don't hear quiet as detached and uncaring. Here's what N.T. Wright says. But how is it all to work out? Jesus is quite clear. One of the beautiful things that distinguishes the Christian idea of justice from others is that it is participatory. We are part of bringing it about. Once Jesus has done what he has to do, he will send the spirit upon his followers so that through our witness, a new sort of justice will be born. So don't hear quiet as detached. Don't hear quiet as uninvolved. Don't hear quiet. What we're talking about is a a lack of anger, a lack of angst, a, a, a lack of sarcasm because we have the confidence of the resurrection. The Christian response is not to do nothing, N.T. Wright says. We work. But here's what N.T.'s asking. What if this work looks more like love than it does anger? What if it looks more like peace than it does rioting? What if it looks more like shouting than it, more like quiet than it does shouting? What if it looks more like serving than it does power? What if the Christian response to injustice is actually starting to look a lot like a worldly response to injustice and we need to rethink how God brings justice into the world? And what if it's not that we're not working at all? Don't hear that in this. It's not that we're not working. It's that we're working in a different way. And what if we're getting, what if we're getting it all wrong? We, think we need more power and we actually need more serving. We need more anger and we actually need more love. We need more angst and we actually need more peace. What if the Christian response to injustice is very similar to Jesus' response to injustice and it's a quiet response? 
It's the response of Israel when they lived in Babylon of saying, we're going to build houses, we're going to raise our families, we're going to love our neighbor, we're going to work toward justice the way God has called us to work toward justice. What if it looks different than we think that it looks? There is so much angst in our world, you guys. I'll tell you when my eyes are really open to it. I was on this kind of Facebook thread and uh, I was reading about cast member interactions at Disney World. That the general public was yelling at cast members at Disney World. And I was like, oh, we're in trouble. (laughs) The happiest place on earth is like, I'm going to light you up. (laughs) Even more than Disney, the church. We have this confidence in the resurrection. We have this confidence in the second coming of Christ that someday things will be made right and someday they will be made new. Our captivity will end and justice will prevail. So what is there to be angsty about and angry? We have confidence in his work. And so we, Greek terminology here, we dial it back a bit, right? (laughs) Dial back the anger a bit and the angst and the sarcasm and we quietly work for justice. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for his example in this. And Lord, we just, right now, we want to express our confidence in what you're doing. The way that you're at work in the world, we want to express our confidence that the world has their way of satisfying our need for justice. And quite frankly, I don't think it's working very well. But you have called us to something new. You have set an example for something new. And may our hope and our peace be in you. May we be a quiet people. Not uninvolved, but that are choosing love over anger, service over power, peace over angst. And may we quietly work in our neighborhoods and in our world for justice. It is in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. So Jesus sets this great example for us, and we're going to remember, I mentioned earlier that we remember it every single Sunday. We want to remember the crucifixion. We want to remember the example that Jesus set, and we want to follow his example, because one of the reasons Jesus, I believe, responds to Pilate the way he does is confidence. He was confident in what God was going to do. And so he's like, he gave no response. And so as we receive communion together, I just want us to think about the example that he set and the grace that he shows. And then I'll come back up here in just a minute and we'll receive communion together. His body for you. His blood poured out. Jesus, we thank you for your example. May we follow it. May we live by it. May we not be overcome because of our confidence in your resurrection and our confidence in your second coming. May we not be overcome. It's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. Will you stand up? We're going to close with one last song, and uh, next week we'll continue in uh, the series and kind of look at the idea of love and finding it fulfilled in Christ. God bless you guys. One, two, three, go. This is my testimony.